everyone, welcome back to Confusion Confusions. We're Ashley and Grisha and today we're going to be talking about ancient cities. So the title for our episode today is called Ancient City Sandwich and one of the reasons why we titled it this way was because of how ancient cities were fundamentally built. Do you know that in east of China's Henan province, there were six ancient cities found all buried on top of each other over a span of 2,000 years? Okay, so the other reason why we named it the ancient city sandwich maybe it's not a reason but basically when Ashley first told me about this name the idea of having this name be our, be our episode name the first thing that came to my mind was the battle of leisure so the battle of leisure is actually a battle that Julius Caesar led so mm. he wanted to gain more power in the Roman Empire and so in order to, to, to do that right he he wanted to gain the he wanted to get get become more popular basically among the Roman people. And mm-hmm. one way to become more popular among the Roman people was to conquer new land, which would bring glory back to Rome. So um being like a very powerful military leader, Julius Caesar actually led his soldier his soldiers, right? And he wanted with the aim of conquering Gaul. So Gaul is actually like an area where the military, right? was of almost equal power to that of the Roman Empire. So it's actually a big threat to the Roman Empire and it's also quite difficult to conquer because the military strength and might is almost the same as the Roman Empire. The only difference is that Gaul is made up of several different tribes. So they were not as united as compared to Roman to the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So Julius Caesar's tactic was to confront the tribes one by one. And then this... Um, he was successful until he met um, one tribe called the Arverni tribe. Um, and basically, the leader of that tribe, right, got increasingly anxious that Julius Caesar would, would kill the, entire, the entirety of Gaul. Mm. So he, um, he went to call on the other Gaul leaders, the, tribes, the leaders of other tribes, to unify under his leadership. So, but, but, but then, however, his call for the unification of all the leaders came too late, such that by the time Julius Caesar, um, Julius Caesar basically, uh, his army found the, that, that soul tribe, right? And surrounded them by building a wall around mm. the tribe. So, Julius Caesar's army built a wall around the tribe, separated them from not only the other tribes but also from a source of food then after that Julius Caesar's army right they built another wall around themselves so basically Julius Caesar's army was trapped between two walls they were sandwiched between Gaul like many different Gaul tribes and they somehow succeeded in like conquering the Gaul by killing all the Gallic tribes or like taking taking them taking all the leaders killing all the leaders now and all the tribes became like slaves yeah so okay basically that war is like a very very complicated war but it's mm-hmm. called the Battle of Elysia and it's uh it's known for the imagery of like Julius Caesar's army being sandwiched between the Gallic tribes and somehow mm-hmm. still succeeding yeah. Yeah, that just shows how like incredibly powerful he was at the time. Yeah, I think right. it's, it's his intelligence, but it's also there are also two other reasons why he won. The first one is because of his ambition. 
Mm. Like he's very, he's a very ambitious guy, and he he's willing to like fight to his death, kind of. So he's like willing to risk everything. So he's like a big mm. big risk taker. He's very ambitious, and then the second reason is because he's very experienced, I think, and intelligent. Mm. Okay. Okay, so moving on, right, I wanted to, like, pose this question. Mm. So, there are a lot of myths about ancient cities. Like, for example, like, the seven ancient wonders and, like, Atlantis. Like, do you generally believe in these myths? I feel like I probably would not believe in Mm -hmm. these myths. Yeah. I think maybe number one, the reason might be also because I don't really know a lot about ancient city myths. I prefer reading about, like, real empires that happen because I think for me like the 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 what is enticing about reading a story is like knowing that it really occurred and that like such people actually lived in the past and that such people right like people of such intelligence or ambition or whatever they actually exist today it's just that they don't take on the roles that they did in the past does that make sense? Like, there's... Mm. What do you like, mean? Like, okay, like, there, there might be a Julius Caesar among us now. It's just that he doesn't have a chance to become Julius Caesar because of the situation that we are in. Mm. Because Julius Caesar, he rose to power because of the... Because of how much military and how much war... How much wars there were and how... um In order to rise into power, right, you have to succeed in the military. But then in today's day and age... To become elite, right? It's not necessarily to rise in power through the military. And actually, there aren't a lot of wars. For example, in Singapore. Hmm. So if there was a Julius Caesar in Singapore, he might not succeed in the military. He might not even go down the path of the military. He might have chosen another path as a CEO or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you say like today's world has like different values and like yeah, things that but- allow to succeed? Yeah, but I think what's interesting is like, it's like almost a different world, but the people are the same. So it's like, yeah, I don't know how, I don't know. Mm. So for me, it's like basically, I and I just enjoy reading like real ancient cities over like mythologies, which might not be true. That's what mm. I believe. Yeah. Okay. I think like, if you guys noticed from the previous like Da Vinci Code episode, Grisha's mm-hmm. very like fact-driven. And I'm very, like, idea-driven. So that's I, something, I think, I think mm. that's something we also are discovering as we make the Yeah, podcast. right? Yeah. yeah. I think, um, so, like, to me, the idea of, like, ancient cities have always been, like, super interesting. I don't know. When I was young, right, I, I love, like, anything related to it. There was this game mm. on, on, like, a PS4 or something, and it was related to ancient wonders. And it was, like, the most boring game ever. Like, you have to match colours. Hmm. But I love it. Okay, anyway. Oh. Yeah. But, but, but your interest is in always, like, the mythologies, right? Of yeah. ancient I, cities. I think, like, the fantastical element. Mm. Mm. But I feel like there's also, like, as I was researching, because I was kind of... Okay, a part of me wishes they were real. So I've been searching for, like, reasons mm. why they would be. So I found some, like, interesting, like, tidbits about it. Like, for example, a lot of people don't believe that Atlantis exists. Okay, not exactly. I don't mean it in the thriving underwater city way. I mean it in maybe, like, a city that used to be exist but was, like, buried. 
or like sunken to the bottom of the ocean. So there's actually a lot of other like tales of like islands that have sunken. And even though like people believe that highland like is very hard to sink or like things that weren't like reef islands just made of sand, right? But there was this tale about um the Tionimanu Island in the Solomon Islands of the South Pacific. And this tale actually tells about a husband named Rarai Menu, whose wife went to live with another man on the island. And he was very enraged. So he purchased a wave curse to seek his revenge and travelled to the island with four waves attached to the front of his canoe and four on the rear. So once ashore, he planted two taro plants and kept another and beat a hasty retreat to his own island. And the curse stated that when the leaves sprouted on his taro plant, the onslaught would start. And on that day, Baraimanu sprouted on his um okay, he watched from a mountaintop as the eight waves surged on the island one by one until it sank never to be seen again. So I know this story is also like kind of fantastical, right? But very fantastical. Very okay. <laughs> but there's but there's like science that shows that it was actually a seafloor earthquake that geologists believe took the island. So because the island always teetered on the edge of a steep undersea slope, once the tremor shook the, shook the foundations, a large landslide carried Tionimanu underwater, which likely generated a tsunami train in the process. So this is a more like scientific explanation for what happened, I guess. Mm-hmm. So even though the stories might not be exactly accurate to the mythical element, it doesn't mean that it's not true, I think. <laughs> That's what <laughs> Ashley thinks, disclaimer. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like Rachel is still skeptical. Do you okay. believe do you actually believe the tarot planting? Okay, not the tarot planting. But I believe the islands can sing underwater and become buried and no one could know. Mm. Okay, right? I believe that. Right? But that's just an earthquake and that's not that fun anymore. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, that means there's a possibility that Atlantis existed, right? Yes, sure. <laughs> okay, so moving on to my next story. So this is about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So Hanging Gardens of Babylon, if anyone doesn't know, is like the one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And it's also the most elusive one which is why it fascinates me the most. <laughs> because it's one that a lot of people haven't been able to prove to this day. But actually, okay, this is what it looks like or what people think it looks like. So Greek and Roman texts paint vivid pictures of the luxurious hanging gardens of Babylon amid the hot, arid landscape of ancient Babylon, lush vegetation cascaded like waterfalls down the terraces of the 75-foot-high garden Exotic plants, herbs, and flowers dazzled the eyes, and fragrances wafted through the towering botanical oasis dotted with statues and tall stone columns. So, if you guys are interested, you can go online. There are a lot of graphics that are done based on these like stories. But the reason, okay, so recently this uh, research fellow, um, who's quite I think knowledgeable and spent her whole life researching this, actually asserted that the reason why there were no traces of the hanging gardens ever found in Babylon was because it was never built there in the first place. So basically, uh, recent excavations around Nineveh near the modern-day Iraqi city of Mosul 
have uncovered evidence of an extensive aqueduct system that delivered water from the mountains. And sculptures from the royal palace even depicted a large, a large garden watered by an aqueduct unlike the flat surroundings of Babylon. So this all goes to show that the reason for the... Okay, so Babylon could, the gardens of Babylon could have been in a different place and that's why so many people couldn't find any like ruins which suggested its existence. And the researcher even mentioned that the reason for the confusion of the location was due to the Assyrian conquering of Babylon in 689 BC, whereby Nineveh was referred to as the New Babylon. So people were very confused with the name. So it was mislabeled and a lot of people like, couldn't find it in the end. So there's also like another possibility that it could exist. Yeah. For you, do you, do you think, do you think ba- the Babylon, so the Babylon is an area, right? It, mm. It's like a structure, just like, like maybe like the Great Pyramid. Yeah. But where is Babylon? Um, okay. Is it, in, uh, is it in like, Iran? Is it, in, mm. is it a real place? No, no, Babylon is a real place that existed. Mm. Like, that one is scientifically proven. Mm. Or, or, like, historically proven. Mm. But, um, Babylonia was a state in ancient Mesopotamia. Oh. Yeah. But, it's just the specific, like, artifact that was more like questioned, I suppose. Yeah. So do you believe it existed? I mean I lean more towards yes. So it's more it was it's a garden, right? It's like one of the world's best gardens. Yeah. It was like the story of how it was created, if I'm not wrong, is it was supposed to be a gift from one of the Babylonian kings to his wife. So it's man made. Yeah, it's a man-made garden. Whoa, that would be so cool to visit today, though. Right. Actually, that's kind of like Singapore. Like what we have in Singapore. Right? But it's more like... The architecture Only is more like quick. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And then... Okay, for me, that remi- this reminded me of like... um, So like the, the whole myth-making... And everything like okay, so this reminded me of like a concept that I, that I found to be very prevalent in like the real ancient cities. <laughs> so basically, me and Ashley, we are we are both we both studied ancient cities, but she studied the, the more, more yeah. fantastical elements like mm-hmm. those that are not like verified by historians. <laughs> and then meanwhile, I studied the like actual empire. <laughs> okay. Okay, and something that I found really prevalent in all the empires. Mm. especially specifically like the Roman Empire and the Chinese Empire mm. is how when like new emperors come into power right yeah. so after either the death of a previous emperor usually when new emperors come into power and if they killed the previous emperor mm. most, most, most of them right they'll be threatened by like the by like stories of the previous emperor. A lot of them mm. they are like Yeah. Yeah. So they will they would like destroy they would do their best ability. Because sometimes there's like 
um, conflicts from the people, from the senators. So sometimes they will secretly like destroy statues from the previous emperor. Mm-hmm. Or destroy like um, books and texts yeah. about the previous emperor. And then another thing they would do, right, is they, 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 there was a, there's a process of myth-making. So for instance, right, um, there's, a, there's an emperor called Liu Pang. So he's a Chinese emperor and he was mm-hmm. the first emperor of the Han, Han dynasty. Mm-hmm. And um, with many dynastic founders, it is difficult to separate the truth about the emperor from the legendary tales about his life that proliferated in like the histories of his reign. So this is because, right, the emperors themselves, they participate in the process of myth-making. So they would, for example, they, for example, Liu Pang, um, during Liu, like, so people's memories of Liu Pang is that he had a dragon-like face, spotted an auspicious pattern of moles on his left thigh, and that a glowing dragon appeared in a rainstorm during his mother's pregnancy as a harbinger of his greatness. Wow. Yeah, personally for me, I find that a bit... <laughs> I, I wouldn't believe all of that, you know, like, I don't know. Even yeah. if it might be true, but... I think a lot of emperors, part- like, they, they... They, they, like, spread tales and they encourage, like, these kind of stories about themselves that um, elevate their status to, like, almost a god level. Yeah, god In it. fact, many emperors and, like, kings of the Roman world, of both Roman Empire and Chinese emperor, Empire, they see themselves as, like, god, gods and goddesses. Which is, like... Mm. Which is no wonder that they would encourage... Um, people to see them that way also because mm-hmm. like it is how they see themselves so they re- they reflect it in like um the architecture that they build and like how they want people to perceive them mm. yeah so um similarly right like Roman Empire so for example an example of the process of myth making is the building of like statues mm. for them like uh, of themselves which would like elevate their status in a way that would make them seem like gods you know to be yeah yeah and then of course the chinese em- empire um in general all the emperors are viewed and perceived as like the sons of heavens yeah mm. so the process of myth making i feel it comes hand in hand with like the the prevalence of megalomaniacs in all the empires yeah. So okay, me- megalomaniacs is basically people that are obsessed with power, and I think there's personally like I I think like megalomaniacs right, it it's the cause of the downfall of many emperors, mm. because they become obsessed with power, they become so obsessed that people around them view them as crazy, and then they see either as an excuse to take them down or a reason to take them down. Mm. Yeah. I think it also causes them to be like very disillusioned with what they can achieve. I guess. Yeah. So I think like the myth making is like the destroyer of evidence, right? That's for me, I think that's like a big reason for like um the like it slowed down a lot of human development. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I and I think that's something mm. that happens in both empires and just in general human history. 
Okay, I don't know. Agree to disagree, I guess. But what do you what do you think? I think like I don't know. Okay, so if we are on like the four against side, right? I mm. I think that myths actually help to like it's like a social unifier in some sense. Oh, okay. Yeah, like sometimes you need it to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the stability. Like there's this quote which says like history is written by the victors. Mm. And I feel like if it's not taken to such a dramatic extent, like a lot of history is rewritten even like to this day. Mm. In a sense of like, for example, the I know how like in Japan like the textbooks are different, like regarding the specific like occupations that it had. Yeah. And then for sure like if you visit the the Nanjing Massacre Museum will show like the very like painful side of it which maybe Japan wouldn't show in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's so interesting. I don't know. Yeah, but I, yeah, like mm-hmm. like the em- emperors themselves when they erase information is also to support it's also to like support their rise to power. Which mm. obviously like in ancient history, in ancient cities, the existence of the emperor actually provides stability to a lot of, to a lot of, to the people. Mm. Yeah, like without an emperor, that would cause chaos. Because mm. it's like what the people know. So it's almost like inevitable. Yeah. Like yeah. I think you mentioned like earlier to me, like after Julius Caesar fell, there mm. was a lot of chaos, right? Yes, that happened. Mm. Okay, that's, that's something else. Okay, but okay, that actually reminded me of um, Napoleon because he was one of the firm believers where what you created in your role as like like in power would kind of show how great you were who's Napoleon? so he was actually um, this like very powerful man in the 18th century if I'm not wrong yeah mm. I think um, 18th century and he was French like military and political leader mm. so uh, 18th 19th century so mm. um, one of his greatest creations was actually the Paris catacombs which um, okay so basically it's this um, okay by the middle of the 18th century Paris had a gigantic issue and it was that it was so overwhelmed by its rapid growth that the city's cemeteries were literally overflowed with bodies of the dead. And the reek of, yeah, the reek of decomposing flesh attained epidemic proportions in that it flooded the entire cities. The entire city. So, the story of Paris Catacomb was how Napoleon actually took this and kind of transferred it to a tourist attraction in Paris so basically it took more than two years of work for the majority of Paris cemeteries to be dug up and relocated to create this underground network of bones and like um, basically you search it up it's it looks like a lot of underground tunnels but the Mm -hmm. walls are all made of like human bones Mm -hmm. yeah so this actually was mirrored after the Rome catacomb, which doesn't exactly look the same. But it was when it was completed in Paris, it was basically um, a gigantic piece of artwork that was created. And then 
there was this quote in Les Mis, which says that Paris has another Paris under herself, which kind of really highlights how like the the grandiose nature of the construction, I think. Mm. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Okay, what stuck out to me in that story, I feel is like the violence in that what you said about the, the dead bodies and everything. Mm. Right. I think it feels very mm, like they're very detached. Like the people that are doing this, like they don't they don't feel like it's dead bodies. It just feels material to them. Mm. I don't know. Do you feel that way? I can't imagine myself living in like, I don't know, a city where there's so many. But I think, I don't know, I feel like it, it sounds very horrific, but if you're living during the times, it's just like, normal, so, like normal. so normalized. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if it's, is that death or is it violence? It's like death, right? It's the but it's, death is normalized. But it wasn't like they killed the people. It was like, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think there was a line in the article that particularly stood out to me and it was like, how about all cities are additions to a landscape that requires subtraction from elsewhere. Mm. It was so so like the sacrifice, right? Or basically like remodeling, I guess. Remodeling. Mm. Yeah. But like subtraction from elsewhere is like taking something away from somewhere else. Mm, For example, I mean, it doesn't always have to be taking away. For example, a lot of Paris was built from its own underland. So like stone and like ruins were used to... underlands? Like, mm, basically, it was built on like a lot of debris, I guess. Ah, Like a lot of random pieces of stone, like uneven stone so a lot of it was used to make like very iconic buildings like the Notre Dame Cathedral mm. the Saint Estache Church I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly but mm. yeah okay that's an interesting thing about Paris architecture that I didn't know about mm. okay so um, I think linking to that Maybe that's not really a very good link. But something <laughs> I wanted to talk about is mm. the violence in ancient cities, right? Mm-hmm. I found that like um like violence is a very constant thing in human history. Mm, for sure. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because like we only remember like the violence that exists. But yeah. Um it's like when you watch these kind of history, historical documentaries, mm. or historical drama, a lot of the conflict centers around the violence that takes place um, as people try to rise into power. And then, mm. this violence, right, is not only seen in among the elite people, it's also reflected in the way that people, um, the way that people lived. For, so, for example, in the Roman Empire, um, the okay, so for example, in the Roman Empire, right, gladiators were a key, like they were a key part of like the Roman Empire. So yeah, they played a key role in the Roman Empire. So gladi- gladiators, they are either like professional, professionally trained to become gladiators, or they were like slaves that become gladiators. Um, mm. Yeah, 
So basically, um, Roman emperors, right, in order to become more popular among the people, they would hold gladiator fights. So it's like, these gladiator fights would, would, would last for like many days, depending on the emperor. Lah. So mm. there'll be gladiator fights, then sometimes they'll introduce animals, it'll be like a lot of partying, and then the entire of like, uh, the, almost all the, the whole Roman city will come to celebrate together. Mm-hmm. And then, so the key event is the gladiator fight itself. Like, there, are, there might be other like celebrations, dances or whatever, but the main event would be the gladiator fights. So, mm. gladiator fights is when, like, two men, they are given swords, and then they are just fighting to death. Mm. So, the Roman people, they really enjoyed watching these gladiator fights. Yeah, and... So, it's, like, it's part of their culture, almost. Yeah. Um, emperors would use gladiator fights to make themselves more popular among the people. So, they will spend money on gladiator fights in order to become more popular. Because the Roman people is like, you have to become popular among the Roman people in order to truly become in power. Hmm. Yeah. But it's crazy to think like how people could enjoy so like, something so brutal. Yeah. And like, enjoy it, you know? Yeah. Actually, one of the emperors, right, he wanted to fight as a gladiator. So he's an emperor, right? Oh. But he wanted to prove himself to the people because okay. at that point in time, there were many... Um, there was a lot of like chaos, basically, that during his reign because mm. there was uh, starvation. Because he didn't look after his city properly. So he, one of his closest amb- advisors caused starvation in the city. Mm. Like, he purposely caused it because he was trying to get into power. He wanted to save the city after causing the starvation. But then this starvation caused a plague in the city. So basically, there's a lot of chaos. So in order to win his people back, right, he wanted to fight as a gladiator. Mm. Yeah, I think his name is... If I'm not wrong, it's... Um, let me search, ah. Uh. Is Commodus. Yeah. So Commodus, he actually came into power after his father died. And then he fought as a gladiator. But then, right, he... He actually um, gave, like, blunted blades to the gladiators that fought against him. So he killed mm. all the gladiators that he fought. And then the people believed that he won. But he was, it was actually, like, a de- like almost this this deception, mm. yeah. And he's an example of like a megalomaniac, someone who became obsessed with power. That he wanted to, he actually had the idea of he really wanted to fight, but then he realized that he couldn't fight to his death because he didn't have the skill that it took. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about is, um, the role that women played as queens, wives, servants, and mistresses mm-hmm. in ancient cities. Yeah. So, for example, in the Chinese, Chinese emperor, empire, right, um, there's actually, there was actually only one empress, and mm. it's called, the empress of China is Wu Zetian. Mm. So basically, I actually binge-watched 
like eighty plus episodes of Oza Tian. <laughs> but she came from I think she she came from like a peasantry or like servant background. So like her family her family wasn't royal. Mm. And she became the concubine of Emperor Taizong. And then she went on to become um his his emperor's consort. And oh. his main yeah, his main emperor's consort, which is like quite a high title, right? And then after that, right, she when the emperor died, right, she gained the affection of his son. Yeah. So I think okay, basically Oza Tian is a very long story, but she's very intelligent and she knew how to I don't think I think it's a combination and with intelligence and also evilness because in order to rise into power in China in Chinese in the Chinese empire right as a woman you had to um conquer a lot of obstacles which included like your rivals of lo- in love mm. yeah so she had to kill a lot of other women to get to where she became and in the end she became the empress of China and it took very very long because she had to fought she had to fight her way up the harem and then even when she was at the top of the harem there were constantly people trying to bring her down mm. yeah so um, Wu Tian is an example of a woman that came not from a royal background but rise into power and actually like affect the history of China but she's she's an exception because obviously she's the only empress in China but then um, that like women actually play a huge role in the Chinese empire in general mm. yeah in like what other roles did they take up in the Chinese empire so they, I mean obviously like the empress, the mistresses and everything. So for empresses, right, they actually take on a big role by influencing the emperor mm. in like his in his um political like actions and everything. And then mm. also the mothers of emperors also play a huge role in influencing the emperors. Mm. Yeah. And actually if you think about it like um, because emperors and kings were such a like big thing in ancient history, right? They were actually surrounded mostly by women. Because oh, that's true. Yeah, mm. in ancient in ancient cities, right? Um, powerful men they would ha- they would have like large harems. It's like a key trait. Like in Egypt, Rome, um, China, Greek, actually not Greek. Greek cities. I don't I don't know much about, but. Yeah, all the large empires, mm. even the Persian Empire, a key defining trait is like the large harems that um secured their power, I guess. Or as a consequence of their power. Yeah. If you if you were in lived in the ancient history, what what women would you want to be? What kind of woman would you want to be? I don't know. I feel like I wouldn't want to be anywhere near power. So you just want to be a normal person? Like a regular, yeah. I feel yeah. like, especially like the higher up you go, maybe, um, maybe Uzatian is an exception, but the higher up you go, the greater power asymmetry there is. 
I think and the more dangerous it becomes. Yeah. And the more it becomes like ob- like women become objectified, I think, in a sense. As like yeah. a as like a symbol of the emperor's power. Mm. So in, in okay, so I'm let me move on to like the, the roles that women played in Rome. So this time I'm more mm-hmm. I, I remember more clearly because I just watched the documentary, but mm-hmm. um there were many powerful women, but mm-hmm. two of them that I remember most particularly are the women close to Julia Caesar. So the first woman the first woman is Servilia and the second mm. woman is called Cleopatra. 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 Mm. Mm. Okay, so Servilia, many of you probably haven't heard her, of her name before, but she was um, the wife of a senator, so like a powerful senator, and she had a son called Brutus mm. with that senator, I think. Yeah, basically she had a son called Brutus. That's the most important part. And then... Mm. So, Julius Caesar had an affair with Servilius. So, Servilius, right, she's actually um, one of the most important, like, she's like one of the most important back-channel politicians in ancient Rome. Mm. So, um, she, she played a very, she had a very big influence on the politics in Rome, mm-hmm. but she never actually took on any powerful positions. Yeah. She's always like a wife. Okay, wait, for context, right? Yeah. Servilius' son, Brutus, is the man who eventually killed Caesar. Yes. Like, one of the people that... He was, like, one of the main... Yeah, main yeah. people who killed Caesar. Mm. Yeah, so... um, Julius Caesar actually saw Brutus as almost like a son because he had an affair with Servilius. So, when he was having an affair with Servilius, Brutus was still a young boy. So Julius Caesar knew him as a young boy. Mm. And then later on, um, when Julius Caesar was fighting in a civil war against another powerful man, Brutus was fighting alongside the other powerful man. So basically, Brutus was fighting against Caesar. But then Caesar um, ordered his army not to kill Brutus. So Brutus survived, even though his side of the civil war, everyone else died. Mm. Yeah. And then what happened in the end is um, Julius Caesar he is skipping many steps but Julius Caesar became the dictator in Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, so at that point in time Brutus was uh, Brutus was uh, uh, he became like a, sen- a senator because his mm-hmm. father was a senator. And mm. in ancient Rome in order to become a senator your father has to be has to be a senator. Mm. Yeah, then, um, basically, Julius Caesar, he, he went to Egypt, right? Because, uh, his, the guy that he fought against, right, fled to Egypt. So he wanted to find the guy that he fought against. Yeah. And then, at that point in time, Egypt was facing his own problems. So Egypt was, at that point in time, it was, they had a king, right, of Forfarer, I don't know how to pronounce but let's call it king. Then, um, so um, Cleopatra's brother was actually like kind of like king. And then Cleopatra, basically, uh, when Julius Caesar reached Egypt, right? Cleopatra and, and and Julius Caesar formed an alliance. And then they had a they had a love affair. 
What do you do? You, do you know about this? What do you think? I never knew about um, Julius Caesar's connection to Cleopatra, and I don't know. I knew that Cleopatra was the like ruler of Egypt yeah. for the last. Actually, she was the last ruler of Egypt. Yes, but I've like to me, Julius Caesar and Cleopatra were from different worlds. Same, right? But anyway, so in the end, Julius Caesar and Cleopatra they they had a relationship. And then, okay, so Julius Caesar went back to Rome as a dictator. And then, eventually, um, Cleopatra came back to... Okay, so Cleopatra, because of Julius Caesar, right, she became the queen of Egypt and mm-hmm. defeated her brother. Because Julius Caesar, which is, who is a very mighty military guy, helped her. And yeah. so, she became the queen because of Julius Caesar. That's crazy, though, that she rose into power because of Caesar. And then... Um, nine months later, maybe more than nine months, she went back to Rome and mm-hmm. announced to everyone in Rome that she was she had she was pregnant with Julius Caesar's son. Mm. Or she had already given birth to Julius Caesar's son. Yeah. So basically imagine like imagine you are a, imagine being like a citizen of Rome. Like finding out that the Empress of Egypt just an affair with your emperor, like your dictator. It's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, at that point in time, everyone in Rome was like, what the heck? Yeah. And then, so Servilius was still alive then. And Brutus mm. was obviously still in the Senate. And then, I think during that point in time, when Cleopatra was in Rome, right? That was when mm-hmm. Julius Caesar got killed. Oh, okay. Fun fact. That Grisha told me just now. Cleopatra also married Mark Anthony, who yeah. is also one of the main people that planned Julius Caesar's murder. Yes. So for us, this crazy is like how intricate the relationships, like the relationships and the politics of that time, how intricately they are tied. Like, the reason why Cleopatra became the queen of Egypt is because she had a relationship with Julius Caesar. Mm. It's like, these relationships gave them power. It's <laughs> small world. But it also led to their downfall. So, yeah. yeah, like, the relationships, like, everything is related to the power politics. And that might be how it is now also. Mm. Do you think? Do you think that's how it is now? Mm. I think not as much. Hmm. I think, I don't know, I feel like the process of gaining power is still very much a relationship game. Yeah. Like a connections game, but it's not as, I think marrying doesn't make, doesn't like a relation, like love relationship between men and women don't give people as much power now. Yeah. I think, I think there's other ways you can gain power now. Yeah. But I think the prevalence of um love affecting like love and affection and like relationship between men and women um causing like either the man or woman to become to get into power is less prevalent now. Do you think mm. that reduces the role of women in politics? Like oddly. I think I think it's different now because in the past it was more like women had to use that method to gain power because there was no other way. Mm. But now it's more 
prevalent to see women actually in power. And it seems legitimate. Yeah. Even though that's not the case in all countries, of course. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so to wrap up this episode, I'll share one last story with you guys. And it's about... Okay, it's not about ancient cities, but it's actually about new cities. So, there's this city that I read about called Songdo in South Korea that was built from scratch... Um, and appeared like a pop-up tent over the past 15 years. So, the striking fact about the city is that it wasn't, it wasn't just built up in a few years, it gained a 130,000 person population in just a handful of years. Mm-hmm. And this has become the new norm with hundreds of entirely new cities sprouting up across Asia and Africa since the early 2000s. Mm. In fact, in over 40 countries like Malaysia, Nigeria, Billions of dollars have been dumped into developing new cities from ground up. And Indonesia alone is constructing no less than 27 new cities. Which is crazy because flipping the 1990s era idea that urbanization is an economic scrooge, many countries are now viewing it as an opportunity to develop massive cities. And like basically metaphorical gaming tables where billions of dollars are being won and lost. Hmm. I don't know. I don't you just think like the idea is crazy that so many that it's happening so insanely fast. Yeah, I think this is also a geographical concept of like mm-hmm. urbanization and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Then another thing another trend that is coming out actually is like the um, cities are becoming larger. Mm. So that they are building like especially in developing countries, they are building mega cities. Oh. Yeah. So like cities are becoming bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh urbanization concept, I think. Yeah. Mm. I don't know, it just feels so like crazy mm. from from the point of the world where we are, where we are like mm. we take up like an island which is maybe two hours top to bottom. Yeah, but it's weird that like um the concept of cities still exists, like it has existed for so long. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of um, reflections of our current cities and like ancient cities. Okay, yeah, so we've come to the end of our episode. And in next, week, uh, next week's episode, we'll actually be covering like a book. Mm. A book episode. What do we call it? I forgot what we call it. Book club. Yeah, book club. Mm. So we'll be having a book club. But we haven't decided on the title yet. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can, as usual, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other major streaming platform. And you can find our Instagram at Confusion Confusions. Thank you, and good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.